0: Hello and welcome to Strange Sound. I'm Joe. This is a special episode of Strange Sound. Pretty much all of them are special episodes now, which is to say, uh, I'm not doing this on a weekly basis anymore. Uh, I was, or (laughs) what was I doing before? I guess I was doing every week or so. Um, With some interruptions, uh, I stopped doing that uh, last fall. I've been missing. I've been amongst the missing. I apologize for not speaking with you sooner, Um, but I've been amongst the missing mainly because I was looking at the stats for this program, and in all honesty, there's really been very few uh, listeners, so I just reasoned, I think, rationally that uh, (laughs) there's no point in... Doing this If I'm just talking to myself. So if you're out there, if you're listening, I would be glad to hear from you. I hope you will use, um, the, uh, talk back feature on the anchor app to, um, put in your two cents and let me know that you're listening, even if it's just a call out and say hi. Um, or you can find me on Twitter at strange sound pod. Um, Reach out to me, whatever way you like. We've got a Facebook page it's linked to on our Anchor site, which is anchor.fm slash strange sound. Just give it a look and uh, give it a listen and uh, interact with me. Let me know that you're listening. And I will be glad to do more of these. I will not do them weekly for now. Uh, I'll do them occasionally like I am right now. So first question that I have for myself. (laughs) <laughs> this is a very inwardly focused show, I realize. Um, <laughs> why am I doing this uh, special episode? Well, uh, it is the anniversary of the January 6th um, attack on the Capitol last year, first anniversary of the attack on the Capitol. And it, I just thought it was worth taking a few minutes to reflect on this. First anniversary of the attempted insurrection. Um, I believe some of you, if you've been listening to this podcast at various points, and I'm not sure that you have or not, but if you've been listening, if you're listening to this, if you've been listening to this podcast for any time at all, if you listened last year, I did do an episode around January 6th, uh, perhaps right after that, and I probably talked about what my experience was that day. Uh, Again, uh, this is like my discussion of 9-11 last fall. Uh, I did not have a singular experience that is particularly noteworthy. My experience was the same as people all across the country, I'm sure. I was working at home on January 6th, uh, 2021. Uh, We were working remotely in those days because of COVID. Um, And... And uh, I was actually working upstairs in my office. My my wife had MSNBC on, I believe, uh, downstairs. I could hear it in the background. And I could hear the correspondents talking about people at the Capitol, you know, protesters at the Capitol. And they kept interrupting their regular programming with these um, kind of increasingly uh, panicked-sounding reports from the Capitol, and I, I was working. You know, I was writing. And I'm a writer by trade, and I was uh, working on something, and I kept getting distracted by this, by the, by the background sound. Uh, I might have looked online to take a look at what was going on, and and eventually I made my way downstairs and looked at the television screen, and I have to say my jaw hit the ground when I saw the front of the Capitol with all those folks like climbing up the front of it and crowding around the the balcony of the front of the, I mean, it's whatever they call the front of the building that's the sort of higher level. Um, People lined up on that, people climbing up it, people just crowding around the Capitol, and I was just looking at that. And frankly, it was astonished. I just thought it was shocking. And, of course, it was shocking, um, and a lot of what followed that was, you know, uh, pieced together in in the um, days that followed. Uh, we didn't see a lot of the interior shots, I don't believe, until subsequent days um, when it was clear that uh, that one woman had been shot and one woman had been trampled, uh, somebody had had a heart attack, that sort of thing, uh, Some and some people. Police, uh, some members of the police force had died or committed suicide uh, within the few days that followed. Uh, so we didn't really understand the the full sort of human impact of it uh, right away. We did have an idea that there was this attack happening on the Capitol and that they were Trump, uh, pro-Trump protesters um, and, and basically rioters um there because they they were disappointed at the outcome of the election <laughs> um i think i was aware at the time that it was the day that the electoral votes was were, were being tabulated and confirmed in the in the senate and the house um and and i don't think we had any clear idea of exactly what was going on, but we had more of a general sense of that. Obviously, over the past year, it's become quite clear what was going on, that it was really kind of following a mapped out plan. Uh, I don't think this is controversial to say. I mean, obviously, we've seen the PowerPoint that uh, that Mark Meadows was working from. <laughs> uh, we've We've heard all the... Conversations and all the planning that's been going on, uh, that was going on prior to January 6th of last year, um, they definitely had a well-articulated plan to, um, stop the electoral count and the certification of the election and the actual electoral college election of the president, um, which, which in fact did proceed, uh, that evening and into the next day, um, but uh, obviously, we didn't know all that uh, on on January sixth, twenty twenty one. We found that out. We found all those details out later. But it's clear that that was an attempted coup. Quite clear that that was the intention, and that that was in fact what was done. It was unsuccessful but it was indeed an attempted coup d'etat. Um, whatever you think of the winner of the last presidential election, Joe Biden, um, whatever you think of his defeated opponent, former President Donald Trump, that was a coup attempt. And it was the final step in a long Kind of a long plan from election day forward that election day 2020 forward that uh, mapped out the pressure points in the electoral machinery, in the tabulation machinery, and in the process that's involved. It's some somewhat complex process involved in pulling together, certifying the votes in all of the states. And selecting the electors and and sending the results of, of the electoral um, process, the, the vote by the electors in all of the state capitals, sending that certified vote to Washington to be tabulated uh, on January sixth, and um, they had gone through and you know, identified every pressure point, every trigger point in that process from the beginning to January sixth. And January sixth was the last point at which they could they could game this. And their their plan is well known now. They had a plan. They had a plot. It didn't work, but they had a plan. And the plan was to, was, was to not only interrupt the, um, the counting of the electoral votes or the certification of the election in the Capitol, but to get, for one thing, to get Mike Pence to um, refuse to accept the results of the election, in essence. Not to get too technical about this. To get Mike Pence to refuse to accept the results of the election, he tried to find a way to do this. By the way, and he just couldn't. He he couldn't find enough support outside of the outside of the uh, president's inner circle to to actually pull this off. It's kind of hilarious that he had to call Dan Quayle, and that in some respects, Dan Quayle is the man who saved the republic. <laughs> but. I, I I won't will get too deeply into that, but it's it, it's like Mike Pence was trying to find a way to um, license this in his own mind, you know, and allow himself to do President Trump's bidding on this, and he just couldn't. He he couldn't do it, and so <laughs> so that was. That was one of the flaws in their plan, right? But the idea was they were going to have Pence, you know, not certify the election. And their prediction was that the Democrats would go nuts and there would be some kind of a, there'd be massive protests. And then the president would declare a state of emergency. President Trump at that time would declare a state of emergency and that would create the level of chaos that they needed to um, to basically flip the election back and just have a general declaration. I mean, they tried to come up with this uh, by appealing to the states and saying, you know, we, we have serious doubts. They had an operative in the, in the Justice Department reach out to um, secretaries of state in key states to say we have serious doubts about the integrity of the election, stating that without evidence and, <laughs> or without credible evidence anyway. And, uh, you know, we we would like you to um, decertify uh, these votes. Um, and that failed. Uh, so they were left with what happens in Washington on January 6th. And, and their plan was mapped out, in the powerpoint presentation that they were going to create a sense of chaos you know by by not certifying the electoral vote and in the ensuing chaos they would declare a kind of a state of national emergency and in so doing give themselves the opportunity to certify Trump as the duly elected president that didn't work but Um, As much as people want us to move on from that day, uh, I know my own congresswoman, Claudia Tenney, uh, former schoolmate, by the way, um, of both myself and my brother, um, (laughs) would like us to, explicitly would like us to move on. She said so on her Twitter feed. You can check it out. Um, They have not moved on from this. And any unsuccessful coup is... Uh, what you might term practice, right? If they failed, it's the first time is practice. They have identified where the pressure points are. And ever since that day, and the year that's followed that day, they've been working overtime. The Republican Party, the former Republican Party, what I call the autocratic party, we have a Democratic Party and we have an autocratic party. The autocratic party is what's formerly known as the Republican Party. They are looking for ways, and they are—they have identified the pressure points here. Sometimes it's at the local level. It's the people who tabulate the votes. It's the people who certify the vote. They're looking to replace the somewhat nonpartisan or bipartisan, or you know, kind of uh, bureaucratic folks. Who administer elections at a local level, on a state level, and they are seeking to replace those people with partisans who will select the winner based on their ideology, not on who got most who got the most votes. That is what they seek to do. It's obvious. We're seeing it happen in real time, right in front of our eyes. So that. That is a crisis. It's an ongoing crisis. I know Claudia wants us to forget about it. I know that a lot of people in the Republican Party want us to forget about it. I'm sorry, the autocratic party, formerly known as the Republican Party, they want us to forget about it. But we're not going to forget about it because it's still happening. It's not an incident. It's a process. This is happening right now. In fact, it's one of the three major crises that face us right now. One of the three major catastrophes that are facing us right now. One is the crisis of democracy. The crisis of, you know, sort of keeping the republic. Whatever you think of it, and it's got plenty of flaws. It's bent in all kinds of ways. But it's better than having no system at all. Because then just, it's just a matter of the powerful ruling. The powerful rule uh, in a mediated way right now, but it's better to have a set of rules than not to have a set of rules. I don't want to get too deeply into that, but honestly, this is a crisis. The crisis is we need to keep the autocratic party, formerly the Republican Party, out of power. And in order to do that, we need to... We need to. Um, have a counter-cyclic political outcome this fall. In other words, you know, this is the first midterm in a Democratic administration. Typically, the Republicans win fairly, fairly bigly, as Trump would say, uh, on the first off-year election, that they pick up seats in the Congress, um, in the House, and in the Senate. We have to push that back. We have to stop that from happening. And the only way we can do that is by organizing and by voting. That's it. That's not the only thing we need to do, obviously. We need to remain active, but we also need to vote. That's the way we turn this thing back. And we need to go against the cycle. This is not normal politics. This is no longer normal politics. If this were another era, when it's just a question of whose ideological, you know, grouping, which party is going to run Washington, those are painful. <laughs> those are p- painful political losses to have to endure. And I've, Lord knows, I've been on the losing side of elections many times in my life, and I've had to put up with it, and I don't like it. But this is different. And we need to recognize that this is different. This is a question of the survival of the republic, not to be too dramatic about it. If they are allowed to take power, they will not relinquish power. And they will use the tools of power to keep themselves in power. That's one of the crises we face. Of course, we have other crises, right? We have the COVID catastrophe, and we have the climate catastrophe. I mean, there are other crises as well, right? I mean, we've got plenty of things going on, but the three main challenges that we face right now in particular, the ones that demand immediate action, are the crisis of democracy. The COVID crisis, which is killing hundreds of thousands of us. And the climate crisis, which is bearing down on us. And which is like a ticking time bomb. We have very little time left to try to address this to prevent the worst effects of climate change. And we're we're running out of time. And in order to do that, we need to have institutional power to decide where the dollars are spent. That's it. We need that. We can't make that decision without having power. And that's achieved through organizing and elections. That's how it's done. It doesn't happen any other way. So, uh, and these three catastrophes, these three crises overlap one another, and they reinforce one another. The autocratic party, formerly known as the Republican Party, um, is dedicated to COVID denial. They want to go back to normal. Look at what they're doing in Florida. Look at what they're doing in North Dakota. Look at some of these red states. Their choice is to ignore it and to make it hard to mitigate spread of the disease because they don't believe that it's serious even though it's killed more than 800,000 of, of our fellow Americans, including people that I know and climate change they just don't think that that's worth addressing even if they even if they believe in it and a lot of them don't believe that it's it's a thing they think it's Chinese hoax right so in both cases right? <laughs> if we fail to address the crisis of democracy and the um you know using the only remedy we have which is to make our way out to the polls and turn them back then we lose on the other two fronts too. It's going to be impossible to mitigate the effects of covid to push our government to mitigate the effects on on COVID of COVID, if we don't maintain control of both houses of Congress and really expand our majorities, we have the opportunity to do this. But we we need to we need to start organizing now, and we need to plan on voting and encouraging other people's other people to vote. It's the only way. Same thing with climate change. We're not going to get anywhere on climate change. uh, And we can't afford to lose two years, right? We really can't afford to lose two years. If we lose control of the House and the Senate in the fall, that's two years of nothing being done. Zero. Very little has been done over the last year Right? Since uh, Biden took office. But something's been done, and we've gotten very close to doing much more. But we need more votes in both of the houses. That's how it works. It's not going to work any other way. So, three crises. And the only way to really address these is to continue to organize and continue to vote in larger numbers. I wanted to raise one point, just in closing, that has to do with this. Uh, much was made of the election in Virginia this past year, in November 2021. Um, the the gubernatorial race in Virginia, where... Uh, Glenn Youngkin, the Republican, um, edged out uh, the former governor uh, and Democratic fixer, sort of money bag guy, uh, Terry McAuliffe. Not surprisingly, but again, something that could have been avoided. Um, a lot of people, a lot of things have been said about the reasons for this win for yunkin you know winning over McAuliffe. and it was a it was a pretty close race um it was 50 to 48 essentially um a gap of out of something like you know 3 and a quarter million votes cast a gap of about 60 65000 votes between the two of them And, uh, you know, Youngkin edged it out with a little bit more, uh, than 50%. Uh, the point I want to make about this, and again, admittedly, McAuliffe, a terrible candidate, uh, he did pull it out before, once before, but (laughs) not this time his mouth gets him in trouble. I know. This is going to make a huge difference in Virginia, though, over the coming couple of years. This is not going to be good. Uh, so <laughs> the, my point here is that if you compare the vote tallies from this past fall, past, November's, past November election uh, for Virginia governor, you, and you compare that with the 2020 election, between, and again, this is a presidential election, between Biden and Trump, you'll see that the vote tallies are much higher in 2020. Now, Virginia is not a state that makes it particularly hard to vote. It's not one of those southern states that's really made it hard for people to vote. In fact, they've kind of expanded access to the ballot um, in certain ways. Um, in the 2020 election, the presidential race, um, there were more than four, practically four and a half million votes cast in Virginia, four and a half million votes. Biden won by over half a million votes by over 500,000 votes. That's a huge gap. But the raw number is higher. More people voted in 2020 than voted in in 2021. In 2021, there is about 3 and a quarter million people voting. three million two hundred and fifty thousand something like that that's in 2021 sorry 3.25 million in 2020 the presidential race which is typical for presidential races right there was four and a half million people voting Biden got 2.4 million votes in Virginia in 2020. 2.4 million. You know how many uh, McAuliffe got last year? 1.6 million. And he was edged out by a guy who got a little more than 1.6 million. 1.663 million. So my point is, if... Forget all the other issues. If all of the people who voted for Biden showed up to vote for McAuliffe last fall, Youngkin would not have won. He could not have won if all those people showed up. Those people did not make it to the polls. I mean, you can hear... A lot of prognostication and, you know, talking heads talking about how, you know, people would change their minds, you know, people voted for Biden, voted for Yunkin, all this stuff. Yeah, maybe that's true. Maybe that's true. But honestly, Trump won, you know, 300,000 more votes in Virginia than Yunkin won. And he still lost because Biden won 24 million votes you know where are those 800,000 voters that didn't vote in the Democratic column in 2021 that's the thing we're facing that's the thing we're facing that's the work we have to do now and so you know just in closing just bear in mind there's a lot to do, a lot of organizing to do, a lot of work to do on the ground. But voting, we cannot neglect voting. I don't care if it's an off year. I don't care if it's an off, off year. You need to vote. It's the only way. And when we vote, we, we can't lose. When we vote, we can't lose. If we show up the way we show up during presidential races, we can't lose. And if we show up, we drown out the voices of the lobbyists and the big donors. If we show up, the people we elect know why they're there. They know it's because we made our ways to the polls. They'll understand that. And they'll be responsive at some level. If we continue to press them. I think we've seen that a bit with the Biden administration. Not enough. They've got plenty of excuses not to act. But most of them have to do with just the way the majority, uh, the thin majority in the House and Senate are configured. In any case, uh, that's all I'm going to say for today. Thanks for listening. Again, you can reach out to me at on Twitter at Strange Sound You can go to my anchor um, site Anchor.fm/Strange Sound. You can also reach that site via my uh, homepage at big BigDashGreen.net and find other ways to get in contact with me. Um, hope to talk to you again soon. Thanks for listening. This has been Strange Sound. Take good care out there. Bye-bye.